Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.com. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's so wonderful to, to be with you guys this morning. Uh, as Pastor Jonathan said, Jacob's Well is kind of like home for us. My wife and he, I moved here six and a half, I think it is, years ago. Um, Jacob's Well was my first job right out of seminary. And we moved here to Green Bay and we kind of stuck. Uh, we came here right for the very last service when Jacob's Well was at Green Bay Community Church, and then we moved over to Bayview, and, and then eventually over here. And, and as he said, we are currently worshiping with All Saints Church in that work, and that has been fantastic. It is so great to see what God is doing there, and you should come visit sometime. I am also, as he mentioned, I'm the, the Logic and Rhetoric School, the upper school principal at Providence Academy, and the chaplain as well. And so... I know many of you, but I also know that many of you have no idea who I am. So, thanks for having me. It is great to be here. The words slipped out of your mouth as if on autopilot. Bypassing those cautionary questions, should I say this? Is this kind? Am I being loving? How am I going to be heard? In an instant, the look of shock and hurt in their eyes tell you everything that you need to know. You messed up. You shouldn't have said that, and you need to apologize. I'm sorry, you quickly blurt out. I, I didn't mean that. The response is cautious, a silent stare. That's not protocol. You had just apologized. They were supposed to forgive you. Suddenly you feel defensiveness starting to well up inside of you. How could they leave you hanging like this? It was just a slip of the tongue. It's not that big of a deal. Hey, stop guilt-tripping me. It's not like they haven't said similar things a thousand times before. Does that sound familiar? I know that I have experienced both sides of this interaction hundreds of times. Why? Well, because I am a sinner living in a sinful world. And as, as churched people, we often learn very quickly that repentance is a necessary thing. But our sinfulness, our wayward hearts easily find rest in what I will call a lazy and easy repentance that is actually no repentance at all. What is true repentance? Well, false repentance is a repentance that only goes through the motions, whereas true repentance experiences real heart change. A false repentance is concerned with how your sin hurt you. 
True repentance is concerned with the deep and hidden wrongs and the ways that the other was hurt. False repentance is concerned with observable faults. True repentance is concerned with the root of why you did it. If you haven't figured it out yet, this is one of those sermons that you sort of really don't want to hear because it's hard, but it's good. And if you're sitting here thinking to yourself, oh boy, I'm so glad that he is talking about this because so-and-so really needs to hear it, you've already missed the point. Bring it back in. Because I don't want you to miss the overflowing abundance of immeasurable joy that is married to true repentance. Would you turn with me, please, to Nehemiah chapter 9. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 25 in Nehemiah chapter 9. That's uh, on some page in the Red Bible and in the Children's Bible and the bulletin that I did not bring with me. And we are going to be looking at a passage that is describing a time of corporate repentance. And it gives us a blueprint for true repentance. First, we need to see the truth, beauty, and goodness of God. Secondly, we need to know the deception, the filthiness, and the wickedness of sin. And finally, we need to embrace the grace, mercy, and steadfast love of our Savior. Nehemiah 9, verses 1 through 25. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham, and you found his heart faithful before you, and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. 
And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things. Cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled And became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage, as we see your people repenting before you, Lord, would you help us to see our own sin and our own need for repentance? Guard us, Lord. Protect us from a cheap repentance. 
Would you restore in us again and again and again a comprehension of your grace and your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Jonathan had shared last week about how Ezra had led the people of God in a time of rejoicing and feasting as they considered and remembered how good God is. And although the people in that chapter had recognized their sinfulness, it was not yet time for repentance. That does not mean, however, that there would never be a time for repentance because repentance is necessary for a healthy and vibrant faith. The book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis is a series of letters that is written um, from the perspective of a demon named Screwtape to his prodigy, Wormwood. As the two of them scheme and plan and teach, they are trying to corrupt and disrupt a man who had been recently converted to faith in God, or as Screwtape refers to him, the enemy. Screwtape writes this letter after receiving an update from Wormwood. He says, For this reason, I am almost glad to hear that he, the the Christian, is still a churchgoer and a communicant. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements. And while he thinks that we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. This dim uneasiness needs careful handling. If it gets too strong, it may wake him up and spoil the whole game. On the other hand, if you suppress it entirely, which, by the by, the enemy will probably not allow you to do, we lose an element in the situation which can be turned to good account. If such a feeling is allowed to live, but not allowed to become irresistible and flower into real repentance, it has one valuable tendency. It increases the patient's reluctance to think about the enemy. All humans at nearly all times have some such reluctance, but when thinking of him involves facing and intensifying a whole vague cloud of half-conscious guilt, this reluctance is increased tenfold. He will want his prayers to be unreal, for he will dread nothing more so much as effective contact with the enemy. His aim will be to let sleeping worms lie. When we fail to avail ourselves of the grace and goodness of repentance, we will often drift into places of uneasiness and stop seeing the truth, beauty, and goodness of God. That is why true repentance must begin with opening our eyes and seeing the God who made us, and seeing God for who He is. In verse 6, the people declare, You are the Lord. 
you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. God alone is the only God. He is the great I am. In your Bible, you'll notice that Lord is capitalized, L-O-R-D. That tells you that the word there is Yahweh, the proper name of God, the personal name of God, the one that Moses received at the burning bush, God's personal identification. Yahweh alone is God. He is the only personal God. He is the only true God. He is the only God who has acted in time and space. In fact, he created time and space. It says, you have made heaven the heavens of heaven. And think of that as as like the Hebrew way of putting like a giant exclamation point on the end of that. Heaven of heavens. There is no one like the Lord God. And all we have to do is look around and see what he has done. And we can know that that is true. And what did this God, this great God do? The almighty creator and sustainer of all things, he went and he singled out one guy, Abram. And he promised to give him offspring even though his wife was barren. He picked one guy who had no children and made his name Abraham, meaning father of many God made a covenant with Abraham in which he promised in Genesis 12 that through his, Abraham's offspring, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And they were. Abraham, when him and his wife were old and past the age of childbearing, had a son. Then later, Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, was blessed by God with wisdom and understanding. And when there was a famine on the earth... He was in a position of power in Egypt. Joseph was able to provide food for his family and the world. And they were blessed and saved from starvation. Abraham's descendants then moved to Egypt where they grew into a nation as God said they would. Abraham truly was a father of many. While in Egypt, the Israelites were enslaved and afflicted. But the one true God saw their pain. He saw the affliction of his children, verse 9, and he acted as any good protective father does. In response to the arrogance of the Egyptians, God brought destructive signs and wonders, plagues that were so great, so amazing, that hundreds of years later, in Ezra's day, it still had not been forgotten. Verse 10 says, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. God not only rescued his people, but he led them. He proceeded to lead and guide them by day and by night and to bring them into the land that he had promised to Abraham. See, the truth that we need to see is that God alone is God and he is good. He is good. It says in verse 13 that God gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. It's good. Who here likes laws and rules and statutes? Who here doesn't really like them? Well, if you don't, you should. Have you ever known someone 
You really don't know what to expect from them. You're around them, all of a sudden they just, they lose their temper. They get angry with you as if, you know, you had done something horrible and you have no idea what it was. You're constantly kind of ducking and looking out for, you know, the, the next arrow or the next shot to be fired your way. And, and when it does, you're like, what happened? I don't know why. You know, I, I work with students and um, generally speaking, uh, there are students who don't like rules and commandments and statutes. But you know what students hate even more than rules, commandments, and statutes? It's being held accountable to rules that they don't know and commands that they were unaware of. Facing consequences and not knowing why. You know, that's how most of the world operates. Why? Why are these bad things happening to me? What's the reason? I don't know. Did I, did I upset someone? Did I upset some God? Is there some cosmic rule out there? They try and come up with rules and concepts like karma or luck. They try to invent solutions to their struggles. I know why we're losing. It's because I changed my underwear, so I'm going to keep it the same all week. Sometimes, in an effort to understand, people may do things that are weird and unfortunate. But other times, people have done things that are incredibly sad and appalling, like sacrificing a child, hoping that maybe that will appease the gods. Rules, commandments, and statutes, it takes the question out of it. What did I do? What am I supposed to do? It's good. It is good. God is a good God that does not toy with his people or abuse his children. Instead, he provides for their every need, for their every hunger, for their every thirst, as we see in verse 15. God fulfills his promises, and it is beautiful. Do you see it? Not once in this prayer do they talk about Abraham's righteousness or Moses' leadership. It is all about the goodness and beauty and glory of God. Before we truly repent, we have to see that. And when we see God for who he truly is, that should reveal to us who we are. You see, we need to know the deception, the filthiness, and the wickedness that characterizes our sin. Verse 16 says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Now, uh, that word presumptuously right there is the same Hebrew word that is used to describe the Egyptians in verse 10 when it says that they acted arrogantly against God's people. It's a word that means to act in total disregard for someone. All right, let's recap. The people were enjoying a special relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth. They had received protection from tyrants, from armies, from starvation, even from their own ignorance. And yet, they disregarded God. They refused to obey 
They created a false god and determined that they would be better off enslaved back in Egypt. How dumb. Anyone looking at this from the outside, Christian, non-Christian, really doesn't matter. They can do a pretty quick cost-benefit analysis and come to the conclusion that the Israelites acted foolishly. It was dumb. But it's deeper than that. How many times have you done something sinful and thought to yourself, well, that was dumb. Don't do that again. But left it there. Left it with an uneasy feeling, as Screwtape says, I don't think I've been doing very well lately. Allowing your sin to deceive you and refusing to see it for the filthy wickedness that it really is. As the Israelites in Nehemiah's day confessed the sins of their fathers, they were well aware of just how awful this sin was. It was so awful that they felt the need to acknowledge and repent of it hundreds of years later. They recognized that the same spirit of disobedience that was in their fathers was present in their own hearts. And you know what? It's in our hearts as well. What sort of core beliefs, what sort of gut-level beliefs must be present to say I'd rather live a horrible enslaved life of hard labor than follow the God who saved me. There's got to be something that we're believing that is wrong. You have to believe that God does not really have your best interest in mind. That you know better than him. You know better than him what you need. You must believe that God has to be withholding something good from me, something good from you with these rules and commands and statutes. There's got to be something better out there. You have to believe that although he made you, although he created you, there has to be other created things that are greater and more worthy of your love and affection. The terrible thing about these beliefs is that they were common to the Israelites in the wilderness. They were common to the refugees coming back from exile in our passage, and they were common to you and I today. Believing these lies is what leads us to the very things that Paul warns against in Colossians 3 when he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you false beliefs. Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And the list could go on. Now you may be thinking to yourself, there is no way that I'll ever be free from all of these things. 
and you, you would be right, the sight of glory. That is why true repentance is so necessary. Because without it, without true repentance, your sin will pull you further and further away from God. So why do we resist it? Why don't we repent? Why is it so hard? Well, it may be because if you're honest with yourself, you don't want to stop sinning. You're not done with it. You don't want to change. You still believe that God is withholding something good from you. It may be, although you probably wouldn't put it this way, that there is a love out there that you love more than you love God. It may be because you would rather feel comfortable with yourself than acknowledge the pain that you have caused another. If you have ever been betrayed, then you have received a taste of what our sin does to God, spitting on his provision and blessings and praising the very thing that oppresses us. If you have ever declared your love only to be rejected so that they could pursue another who is abusive and corrupting, then you know what our sinful acts put God through. If you have ever been a parent of a teenager, going through that phase of self-absorption, then you have experienced an inkling of what our self-worship does to God. Do not hide from the ugliness of your sin, but allow the truth to cut through the deceptions of sin and Satan because without a true loathing of our sin, we will never experience the joy of God's grace. Dr. Brian Chappell in the book Holiness by Grace, he says that repentance is not so much a doing as a depending. Repentance is not turning from one category of works to another. Rather, it is turning from human works entirely to God. Embrace the grace, mercy, and steadfast love of the Savior. You see, although the Israelites had demonstrated total disregard for God, the Lord did not forsake them. He did not forsake them. When they were in the wilderness, the cloud and the fire continued to lead them to the promised land. When they were hungry, God provided them with food and water. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Not only did God continue to look after his people, but he continued to keep his promises The Israelites did inherit the promised land, and they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in his great goodness, verse 25. It is only in the light of who God is and what we have truly done and our helplessness to do anything about it that we start to see God's grace, his goodness, his mercy, his steadfast love. Now, as a, as a teacher at a Christian school, um, I'll go to these education conferences, and I was sitting in a workshop where a fellow educator was sharing about a discussion that he had had with his students. In 1987, there was an artist named Andre Serrano who won the awards in the visual arts competition hosted by the Southeastern Center for Contemporary Art. And Serrano is a photographer, and he, he won the award for a photograph of a jar 
that he filled with his own urine and placed a plastic crucifix of Jesus with arms stretched out within it. It is called Piss Christ. And the discussion began with a question. What do you think this says about Serrano? One student raised their hand and said, I think he's a coward. Why? Well, I'd like to see him do that with a Quran, he said. Interesting. That's a good point. But, but you know what? That photograph also reveals the extent of Serrano's ignorance because he unknowingly revealed a truth about our world and the God of it. See, this act of Serrano is completely irreverent, wicked, and ought to be condemned. But at the same time, he unknowingly communicated gospel truth. What is Jesus' posture in this photograph? His arms are stretched wide open upon the cross. Here we have an image of Christ in the most deplorable and disgusting filth, and yet his posture says, come to me. I offer forgiveness. Friends, when we do not take the time to take up a posture of humility and sorrow as the Israelites did in verses 1 through 6, when we do not look to see who God really is, when we do not acknowledge the truth behind the wickedness of the dirty jar that we bring with us, that we bring Christ into, we risk living a life of uneasy avoidance of our Creator God. But when we see Jesus for who He really is, with arms stretched out in love, when we are broken by our cruel and irreverent acts, we will find that although we have behaved in unlovable ways, God's love remains. His steadfast covenant love. We are forgiven. Not because of what we have done, for if that was the case, there might be something we could do or not do and lose that love and forgiveness but only because of his love for us. That is the only reason, by his grace, his love for you is greater than our sin. As one commentator put it, speaking about this particular passage, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you did not Leave us in our sin as we deserve. But you sent your son to die the death that was ours. That we might live. That we might receive forgiveness. Help us, Lord God, to repent. To look at our sin clearly to hate our sin and to rest on the God who forgives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.